0: South Africa, again, to hammer the magnitude of the challenge, is the fifth biggest net exporter of carbon dioxide in the world, only faring better than Venezuela, Bahrain, Vietnam, and Kazakhstan. So this essentially means that it's acutely exposed to any climate-related trade policies, which is why this paper focuses on the impact of those policies.
1: Despite the amount of load shading we experience, South Africa is one of the most carbon and emissions intensive economies in the world. As the global economy is becoming more mindful of climate change and the importance of reducing carbon emissions, how can South Africa adapt in order not to fall behind and align our industries such that we remain competitive amongst our trading partners? Hello, and welcome to Ursus podcast series. I am Margot G. And today, we will be discussing an upcoming discussion document written by Gracelyn Baskaran on how international environmental and trade policies impact South Africa, which policies are being rolled out by the U.S. and EU, and how will this impact the South African economy? With us today is the author herself. Gracelyn is the Research Director and Senior Fellow for the Energy Security and Climate Change Programme at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. She is also a Fellow in economics at the University of Cambridge. We can find many of her columns in the Business Day. Welcome to our podcast. It is a pleasure to have you on our show. Thanks for having me, Margo. It's always so great to chat. Welcome. It's a pleasure. So South Africa has received a significant amount of global attention for its high greenhouse gas emissions. What is the magnitude of this problem?
0: Thanks, Margot. That's a great question. South Africa is actually one of the most emissions intensive economies in the world. In 2021, South Africa was the 14th biggest emitter, and it actually emitted more than more advanced economies like Australia and the UK, but also our oil producing heavyweight, such as the United Arab Emirates and Iraq. Now, if we look at it through a different lens, which is South Africa's carbon intensity, which is the measure of carbon dioxide produced per dollar of GDP. It is amongst the highest in the world. It's over triple the global average, six times higher than the OECD average, and nearly double the carbon intensity of China, which we often point to as, you know, an incredibly intensive economy. So the magnitude of the problem is accurate to the narrative that the world has pointed to, to South Africa, but it also highlights the need to reduce um, greenhouse gas
1: emissions. Wow, that is quite quite terrifying, actually. <laughs> So as you discuss in your own research countries around the world are beginning to use trade policies to incentivize global decarbonization at a high level how will south africa be affected by this so we can look at this through
0: two through two steps so first is looking at the level of reliance south africa has on its export economy and second what is the carbon intensity of its exports. So South Africa's economy is highly reliant on the export of goods and services. In 2020, they reached 33.5% of GDP, which actually is higher than all BRICS countries and higher than the averages for the world, upper middle income countries and African countries. So exports are the absolute bedrock of the South African economy. And if we look at what Policymakers in South Africa have advocated for its building an export-led growth model. In 2021, South Africa actually exported $143 billion worth of goods and services, which puts it in the top, you know, it ranked 34th out of 226 countries. So it was within the top 20%. Now, the biggest challenge that we have and why do we care about this in the context of emissions is the fact that that South Africa's exports have a high level of carbon intensity. In fact, South Africa has the second highest carbon intensity embedded gross exports in the world after Laos, which is your fun fact because it's a tiny (laughs) Asian country. South Africa is the most carbon intensive in exports in basic metals out of 66 countries when looking at brics countries more broadly it has the highest level of carbon intensity in base metals fabricated metals refined petroleum motor vehicles a good way to look at this is actually that south africa's carbon intensity for motor vehicle exports is triple the the intensity of imports which means that it becomes highly vulnerable to any sort of policies that are that apply consequence for having high carbon in- intensity South Africa, again, I guess is a last point to hammer the magnitude of the challenge, is the fifth biggest net exporter of carbon dioxide in the world, only faring better than Venezuela, Bahrain, Vietnam, and Kazakhstan. So this essentially means that it's acutely exposed to any climate-related trade policies, which is why this paper focuses on the impact of those policies.
1: Wow, so in your research, you identify three policies. That are being rolled out by the US and the EU in an attempt to apply pressure on trade partners to reduce carbon emissions, and rightfully so. (laughs) How has South Africa's trade with these partners changed over time, and which industries depend most on these trade partners now? So this paper focuses on two key
0: trade partners, which is the US and the EU. And I'll start with the EU, which is actually the biggest source of foreign direct investment in South Africa. We have a preferential trade partnership with them through the SADC-EU Economic Partnership Agreement. It's a significant trade partner. Data from the International Trade Commission shows that exports to the EU increased from $6.3 billion to $7.5 billion between 2018 and 2022. So that's almost a 20% increase in a span of less than five years. Um, By 2022, just over a uh, a quarter of all of South Africa's exports went to the EU. Now, the big challenge with this, which we we can talk about more, is that a large share of these are going to be affected by these climate policies. So, for example, the EU imports nearly 60% of South Africa's vehicle and component exports, which will be affected by any sort of ban on internal combustion engine vehicles that use gasoline and petroleum. And as of now, that's all South Africa produces. When we look at agriculture, which is going to be affected by farm to fork, 44% of South Africa's dairy produce, 52% of its fish, 26% of its fruit and vegetables will be affected or sent to the EU, which again will be affected by farm to fork. And then there's the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which South Africa is highly vulnerable to the effects of. And if we, again, if we look at it, about 35% of aluminum, 27% of chemicals, et cetera, will be affected by that. In this paper, I calculate roughly that the sum of South Africa's exports to the EU that will be affected by the three policies amount to about 12.9 billion U.S. dollars, which is a significant amount of money, particularly for an economy that's been struggling for a while. The U.S. is a, a little bit of a different narrative. The primary right now, the primary avenue would be vehicles. Um. However, over time, the amount of vehicles that South Africa has exported to the U.S. has declined. The U.S. is a big trading partner. It is the fastest growing trading partner that South Africa has between 2016-2022. Exports increased by 92.6%. However, the majority of those are in minerals and metals, um, which at this point, we don't see any policies that will affect those. There are certain states, there are nine states in the U.S., more progressive ones like Uh, Maryland and Connecticut and um, California, Massachusetts, who have rolled out restrictions on the sale of gasoline and diesel vehicles. But again, smaller share, majority of the cars are going to the EU. But when you take the, the aggregate of these policies on the US and the EU, they actually are quite economically consequential.
1: Wow. So let's get into more detail on these policies, starting with the first one, The new energy vehicle mandate. As far as I understand, this mandate suggests that the EU and selective US states will be banning the new petrol and diesel cars from 2035 onwards. South Africa's car manufacturing industry is significant. How will this mandate impact South Africa's automotive industry? You mentioned some earlier, but if we could just go into a bit more detail there. That's a great question, Margo. So South Africa's
0: auto manufacturing industry is so important to the economy. I want to start there. It's labor intensive, right? We build all sorts of parts for a vehicle and then we export a vehicle. So it is a bedrock for employment, for value addition, for export revenue. There's parts of South Africa where you go, where pretty much you you have industrial blocks for the automotive sector. Unfortunately, even though electric vehicles have picked up significant traction over a decade, South Africa did not come to the table to manufacture them and build the capacity to manufacture um, kind of new electric vehicles in a timely manner. And so what happened with the automotive narrative over time is there's been trade diversion. And so a significant share, as I mentioned previously, about 60 percent of South Africa's vehicles go to the EU. And the reality is that the EU and the UK have imposed a ban on the sale of new internal combustion engine vehicles after 2035. It was actually going to be 2030 in the UK. And then the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, um, delayed it by five years. So the... Given the fact that so many of these cars will no longer be able to be sold in the European Union and the UK, and then obviously a smaller amount of shares going to the US, many of those won't be able to be sold, it opens up a significant vulnerability to the automotive sector that policymakers are just opening up or really waking up to, you know, Department of Trade and Industry um, has, you know, started to release plans on how we need to scale up production of these vehicles, but it's quite late. It's 2024.
1: Yeah, it's it's concerning and hopefully we can adapt quickly, but if we can't, this will definitely impact broad, e- broad economic issues. So I mean, one of the electric- challenges too,
0: Margot, is I think that electric vehicle rollout in South Africa is probably pretty att- unattainable in the short to medium term because of income inequality. So one of, I think, the, the, the hesitations with building the ish- industry is it would be purely export-led. Someone asked me why we don't um, build more electric vehicle charging stations in South Africa. And it's like, what is the share of the population that can afford you know, a a one point five million Rand vehicle and then have enough charging stations at scale. And this was a South African who asked me this and I said, you know, I rented a Tesla and I took it to Virginia. And I couldn't find a charging station. And I was panicked that I was going to die in my Tesla in Virginia, right? If I can't get my Tesla charged in Virginia, we are a long way away from getting a Tesla charged anywhere, but, you know, two miles in Santon in South Africa. So part of the hesitation with the industry has been that it's not for domestic consumption pretty much at any level. It will be completely export led. However, that transition is still incredibly important if you don't want to lose the jobs and the export revenue from it.
1: Definitely. And then there is ESCOM and the carbon emissions of ESCOM and how consistent and reliable that is. But that's a podcast for another day. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if we look at the second policy, then the carbon border adjustment mechanism, maybe this one will help or be less, less detrimental. <laughs> what is it and how will South African industries be impacted? I wish, too, that it would be less impactful than the automotive
0: challenges we face, but I'm not quite sure that's true. So the carbon border adjustment mechanism is essentially a carbon tariff on carbon intensive products such as cement, some forms of electricity, aluminum, iron, steel, inorganic materials. And it's imported into the European Union. So what this essentially does is it wants to protect domestic industries and ensure that carbon emissions aren't being done elsewhere and then brought into the EU. So essentially, it's to reduce carbon leakage as well. So it's designed to disincentivize high emissions production processes globally, right? By applying a tariff to it. Now, the primary impacts of the CBAM will be on some of the sectors I mentioned earlier. So aluminum, cement, electricity, fertilizer, iron, and steel. Now, UNCTAD did a really fascinating analysis in 2021, and they identified the countries with the largest volume of exports to the European Union in sectors targeted by the carbon border adjustment mechanism. And South Africa ranked number 10 globally out of, I don't know, what do we have, a few hundred countries in the world? Only one position behind the US, which we see as this industrial giant, approximately $3 billion in South African exports will be affected by the carbon border adjustment mechanism, with the bulk of that impacted being concentrated in aluminum, iron, and steel, as well as, um, to a slightly lesser degree, in organic chemical sectors. In 2022, it exported, I mentioned some of these numbers earlier, but 35% of aluminum, 18% of iron and steel, 44% 44% of organic chemicals all to the EU. So South Africa is highly vulnerable in sectors that are directly impacted by the carbon border adjustment mechanism. And the really the only way to make those less emissions intensive and to reduce the penalty that will be applied to those sectors is to reduce, um, you really need to get off of a coal, a, a coal-based kind of power system, because that's a bulk of where the emissions are coming from. So the carbon border adjustment mechanism is a really big challenge. And I guess my last comment on that, I was at New York Climate Week speaking, and there was a really fantastic speaker from the Presidential Climate Commission in South Africa there. And she said, look, we're in a little bit of a chicken and an egg situation, because when the carbon border adjustment mechanism kicks in, it's going to be crippling for public finance. Think about all that export revenue and tax revenue that the government collects. So you're going to cripple kind of public finance, but at the same time, we need to finance our movement, obviously, away from being a a coal-based power system. And that requires also renewable energy, requires upgrades to transmission infrastructure, et cetera. So it ends up becoming crippling public finance, which prevents the ability to make a cleaner energy system. And then how do you break that cycle? Now, I don't know. Everybody has different feelings on this, but since you're talking to me on the podcast, I guess I'll give you mine and come back just later if we want, which is really that maybe there needs to be a delay in implementation for some countries. The problem that South Africa faces for most policies is that it's not low income. It's upper middle income. So they don't qualify for exemptions through things like the CBAM for being low income. Um, But the question is, is there maybe a tiered way to approach the carbon border adjustment mechanism to give countries like South Africa like a lag, get an extra five years before implementation? Mm. But again, you know, I think one of the biggest, bigger challenges we have is that the political will to say, look, we will get this done in five years is a bit has been not there. Um, Mm. But yeah, look, I don't think that the outlook for the carbon border adjustment mechanism is significantly rosier than the electric vehicle (laughs) challenge we face.
1: And just based on what you're saying then, from a demand perspective, would it make sense for our trade partners to move away from the EU and the US possibly more towards the BRICS partners or other trade partners if we cannot meet those regulations? Absolutely. And I think you're totally
0: right. I mean, if you look at so much of the rhetoric coming out of Ministry of Agriculture, I mean, they're very much looking at diversifying markets, Japan, Saudi Arabia. Um, They've sent, you know, delegations to these various countries to recruit new off takers. Right. Um, So I think that's exactly it It is. I think South Africa is already taking measures to de-risk its um, exposure, particularly to some of these policies. But it won't be. Equally easy across sectors, farm to fork is quite easy because South Africa produces a lot of food and as climate change escalates, there's going to be a lot of global food shortages. Your fun fact that you probably may not have wanted to know today is that 70% of farms in Japan have been abandoned. Um, And this is because Japan has a very aging population. And there's not many young people, and the ones who are there don't want to farm. So, Japan was once pretty much entirely self sufficient on food and now is importing a lot of food. And South Africa is building agriculture food uh, ties with Japan, for example. Saudi Arabia once decided they wanted to be food self sufficient and forgot they were a desert. So it's going to be very difficult. So they too, you know, are looking at it as like a potential trade partner. Now, other policies are more difficult because the reality is you can send internal combustion engine vehicles to some countries. I mean, India, China, but they produce a lot of vehicles in and of themselves. Um, but a lot of countries globally are moving over to electric vehicles. I mean, China has just passed, a Chinese company has just passed Tesla as the biggest electric vehicle manufacturer in the world. So the whole world is moving to electric vehicles. So that's one that South Africa will struggle to simply diversify partners and essentially drive trade diversion from one market to another market. And when we look at the carbon border adjustment mechanism, it's a little bit more complicated. It's somewhere between the agriculture challenge and the the car challenge and that, You can send for sure. You can send some of these goods to other. I mean, you can even send more to the U.S. Right. We're not penalizing those yet. I think those punitive measures will come in the next couple of years. Um, But you can with some of those materials, find them. Fertilizers are generally in high demand by many countries, but you won't be able to drive 100 percent trade diversion, number one. And two, the goal isn't necessarily trade diversion. I actually want to increase production. I want to increase my total export. So that requires not just moving trade from one market to another, but it actually, in the long term, a more sustainable approach is bringing down our um, emissions altogether and building
1: production as a way to stimulate growth. Definitely, definitely. We have to find a way to adapt one way or another. And you mentioned the agriculture challenge. And so... The idea behind the third policy you focus on, which you mentioned, the farm to fork, is to make food production more environmentally friendly and cut carbon emissions by targeting agriculture, fisheries, aquaculture sectors, and the broader food chain with sustainability measures. What risks does this pose to the South African economy? So the first thing we need to
0: do is take stock of, like, what is the relationship between South Africa and the EU on the agriculture front? So in 2012, South Africa's share of exports um, in terms of agriculture to the EU is about 9% and it doubled by 2020. So it's become a key uh, market for South Africa in terms of agriculture exports. It's also a critically important export partner in terms of the fact that we are if we look at the national development plan if we look at a lot of south african policy goals it is actually to boost the agriculture sector to generate a million jobs in the sectors it's labor intensive it works in rural areas it generates jobs in the eastern cape and kwazulu natal and limpopo but the challenge is, is that these policies require a more sustainable approach to agriculture or they will no longer be able to go to the eu and the challenge with Sustainable agriculture is that it's expensive, number one. It requires capital. We're talking about drought-resistant seeds. We're talking about better, more sustainable irrigation, et cetera. But it also requires a lot of technical know-how. And that requires building extension services, for example, from a public sector point of view. That's going to be training our farmers on how to take on more um, environmentally sustainable practices. Five years ago, when I worked for the World Bank, I went down to some farms in the Eastern Cape. And typically I, you want a pretty small ratio between farmers and an extension service officer from the government that teaches farmers how to farm and make sure they're, you know, adopting best practices. And most of these farmers hadn't seen an extension service officer. Like there was just such an undercapacity um, that they didn't know what they needed to do to get their water turned back on for example, or if they needed a new borehole, who to turn to. So there's a much bigger problem in the agriculture sector already that when you add in the technical know-how and the capital required to move towards a more sustainable agricultural system, we definitely have our work cut out. Um, but I will add to that. Sustainability is soon not going to be an option because of climate change as a whole. Droughts are picking up with increasing fa- frequency and severity. So you're going to see investments in more climate resilient agriculture anyway, Um, at least at a commercial level. Some of that will trickle down. However, in the longer term, reducing the carbon footprint of South Africa's agriculture is incredibly important because, again, the EU has farm to fork now, but you will see more and more jurisdictions around the world roll out similar policies in years to come.
1: Okay, okay. Now, in your research, you mentioned a handful of policy recommendations. What would you say are the three most urgent ones for South Africa to focus on now? To ensure we remain competitive in the carbon neutral future, there's a lot of work we have to do. But I'm also very optimistic because I've seen
0: strides in it in the last few years. So the first thing is to build clean energy. As for as long as the grid is a unreliable and B, completely reliant on coal, it is going to be impossible to reduce the carbon intensity of our exports. And if we don't reduce the carbon intensity of our exports, we're going to be highly vulnerable to to, to additional punitive measures. Um, as of now, the U.S. does not have an equivalent um, of the carbon border adjustment mechanism in place. However, um, in 2022, U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse introduced a U.S. version of the carbon border adjustment mechanism called the Clean Competition Act to make domestic companies more competitive and incentivize global emissions reduction. And it hasn't been passed yet, but we r- from Washington, I think I can confidently say it's coming fairly soon. And in that case, you're going to see a lot more um, consequences. So in the first run, we need to reduce emissions to reduce emissions intensity to ensure that exports are competitive. That would be the first one. And it, t- t- in that same vein, I think renewable energy investments are really c- important. The government doesn't necessarily have the finances required to make all those renewable energy investments in and of themselves. But this is where creating a conducive environment for private sector investment becomes very, very critical. Um, Margot, as we had chatted earlier, I had Andre De Reuter um, in our office in Washington. And one of the things he said is actually, you know, the private sector has a huge interest in investing in South Africa's energy sector. It's just about making sure there's an environment that's conducive to do so. And I think with the Renewable Energy Procurement Program resuming now, that's great. You know, as long as we can get that cleaner power online, then we are, our, our exports are more pre- protected. The second thing I would say is we need to accelerate the transition in the automotive sector. The automotive sector is a, a lifeline for South Africa. Again, labor intensive, um, export oriented. This may require industrial policy mechanisms. I know that it's a, you know, industrial policy can be a bit controversial depending on who you talk to and which day of the year it is. But it's a nascent industry, which essentially means that there are incentives that are needed to build the industry. There is technical know how that is required. There is a lot of capital that needs to be imported because it's not already existing in South Africa. So, incentives to make that investment. But also to reduce the cost of doing business, it's not a great time. South Africa's macroeconomic environment right now, interest rates are high. So industrial policy incentives can can help reduce the cost of that. Um, So that would be my second one. My third one is that carbon tax is really important. I mean, if you look at something like the carbon border adjustment mechanism, if you look at something like the proposed Clean Competition Act, it's essentially a carbon tax. It's applying a tax to imported goods. Right. that are carbon intensive. South Africa has a carbon tax, but it needs to strengthen implementation of it, reduce kind of loopholes in the system and ensure a timely implementation. Because ultimately one of the biggest things we've learned globally is that carbon tax is a good way to incentivize emissions reduction. And this is particularly true at the industrial level, which is where a lot of our emissions are coming from. I'm not really worried about too many households. So I'd say rolling out an efficient carbon tax ensuring it's well implemented well ensuring it's well monitored um, goes a long way in, in in mobilizing that revenue that can also then be used to finance for example some of that renewable energy we need
1: okay excellent well let's hope our listeners can take those recommendations on board and get going as, as soon as they hear them <laughs> is there um anything else you would like to add gracelyn
0: i am optimistic about South Africa. I know, I know, you know, the rhetoric coming out of Johannesburg is in Pretoria or is not always optimistic. You know, there's the just energy transition, which hasn't come without controversy and challenge. There has been, you know, load shedding has been a staple of the system for 16 years. But in the last year, you know, Abraham Patel has made a quite a, a few public announcements about, you know, ambitious targets to increase the production of electric vehicles. We are seeing the renewable energy procurement program pick up, and bids are going out. And you know, there's things have advanced after a six-year pause. I'm optimistic. I think I think South Africa is going to get there. It just you know, sometimes progress just needs to be a little bit quicker.
1: Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Thank you, Gracelyn. It is an absolute pleasure having you on our show. We look forward to reading your research and hearing more about how climate change policies will impact the South African economy. And this this research that we've discussed today will be coming out and published on OSA's website as well as...
0: Yeah, it'll also be published on our website at the Center for Strategic and International Studies on our Energy, Security
1: and Climate Change Program. Okay, great. And uh, thank you so much for that. We look forward to reading it. I'm Margot G, and this is the Yosa podcast series. A big thank you to our listeners. And if you haven't yet, please follow us on our social media channels. Till next time.